Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to thank everyone who is currently donating to Spiked. Whether you've made a one-off donation or give monthly, it's thanks to your support that we're able to produce our challenging and fearless journalism. If you haven't donated, then why not get started today? It may not seem like much, but just £5 per month can have a transformative impact on our work, helping us to challenge the authoritarian climate we now find ourselves in. It's really easy to donate. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me we have Spiked Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Trump clinging to power, the COVID vaccine and the cancellation of Greg Clark. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Let's not have any lectures about how the president should immediately, cheerfully accept preliminary election results from the same characters who just spent four years refusing to accept the validity of the last election. I just think it's an embarrassment, quite frankly. Donald Trump is still yet to concede the U.S. election, despite the outcome being called some days ago. Trump trails Biden by several thousand votes in a number of the states he needed to win, but he claims this is down to voter fraud. Trump has ordered US agencies to block the transition to a Biden administration. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said that there will be a smooth transition to a Donald Trump presidency. The Justice Department's top election crimes prosecutor resigned this week in protest at Attorney General Bill Barr's unprecedented call for voting irregularities to be investigated before states certify their elections. This overturns a 40-year-old rule against election interference. President-elect Joe Biden has said that Trump's refusal to concede defeat changes nothing, but is merely an embarrassment for the president. Ella, um, what are your thoughts on this? I think it might be the first time I've ever agreed with Joe Biden that this is embarrassing on behalf of Trump. But while, and this is kind of a weird thing to say, while it is a bit mortifying hearing people quite seriously discuss whether he'll have to be dragged out by the Secret Service or you know whether there's going to be a, an attempt to coup and all these kinds of things, the sort of the thing that's making me cringe more is the way in which people outside of the US are reacting to this. So the thing that's been really quite embarrassing is watching certain British MPs really relish this sort of pantomime that Trump is playing and using it to attempt to kind of make political gain. Angela Eagle from the Labour Party did this, and Labour Party MPs keep doing this, did this kind of speech where they try to get Boris Johnson to say something outrageous or condemn Trump in some kind of way. And of course he won't because he's just being boringly diplomatic as you're supposed to be and say the thing that you're supposed to say, which is, we are friends with the White House, we have a special relationship, blah, blah, blah. But Angela Eagle said, you know, your erstwhile best friend is, you know, making a show of himself. Why aren't you going to do something about it or say something about it? And there's this kind of like blind spot in everyone's heads, which we talked a bit about last week, where, you know, it's one thing for Trump being anti-democratic and the way of trying to now quite you know, it's quite obvious that there wasn't sustained or systemic voter fraud and the means through which he's trying to undermine the election are a problem. 
But criticism of that coming out of the mouths of people who for years and years and years denied the Brexit vote in the UK have done all they can to undermine democracy in various ways in their own domestic politics is just as much as Trump is embarrassing, that's also really embarrassing. It's weird watching this because as everyone says, I think unprecedented is a word that you just can't use anymore because we've used it time and again to describe politics over the last few years. But I keep thinking what must American voters be making of this? And I think actually Wendy Kaminer made a really good point in her column for Spiked this week, where she talked about the sort of unending nature of this particular political situation, because whether or not Trump does get dragged out, whether he leaves of his own accord, or indeed, you know, anything could happen, whether it turns out that there was a massive amount of voter fraud enough to change the result in some way. What she makes the point is, is that, you know, the underlying issues in American politics are going to stay the same because guess what? Democrats have not taken seriously the fact that Trump had over 70 million votes. They have not taken seriously the nature of the divisions in American politics and they are doing what we all expected them to do and is treating Biden and Harris's win as a defeat of fascism, as a, you know, stamping on the orange man as all the kind of crass continuation of that political strategy to deride Trump voters, which just means this is not the end of an era. It's not the beginning of anything either. It's just the continuation of the kind of soup of really negative and divisive American politics that we've been dealing with for years now. Tom? No, I think this whole argument is a perfect encapsulation of what's happened throughout the Trump era, which is that there's so much noise and there's so much outrage, but often kind of two things are true at the same time. Mm. Uh, One of which is that the claims that this election was stolen just don't seem to be backed up by any evidence whatsoever. You know, even if you take as read that some of these challenges might actually have something to them, for them to potentially swing the result is just completely inconceivable. You know, the analysis I've looked at suggests, you know, you'd have to move somewhere between 50 and 70,000 votes. I mean, it would take a kind of level of sophistication on the part of the Democrats or George Soros or whoever else these people seem to think is orchestrating this in order to actually swing the election in Biden's favour. And again, I think Trump's refusal to concede, it seems to be more about his ego. It seems to be more about his refusal that he could ever lose anything. And it's pathetic and remarkably transparent. You know, we saw that over election night, him effectively saying that he wanted the count stopped in states where he was doing well, and he wanted the counts <laughs> to continue in states where he wasn't doing so well. We should also remember he even preemptively called into question the result of 2016 and then piped down a bit after he won, but then also claimed that he'd actually won the popular vote <laughs> and that that wasn't shown up. So we, we know all of this. It's despicable, but it is, it's more pathetic at this point. His, his authority is kind of draining away from him as it goes on. But at the same time, to see so many people on the Democratic side, capital D, saying that they must stand up for democracy, expressing so much outrage over this. You know, it was only a few weeks ago that Hillary Clinton was saying that Joe Biden shouldn't concede under any circumstances. There was, of course, the Russiagate conspiracy theory, you know, which was a conspiracy theory. It was like QAnon for the Martha's Vineyard set and was used primarily to try and take him down. And you see some arguments bouncing around Twitter was like, well, at least, you know, that was different. They were just challenging. They were talking about election integrity and it was about interference. But the best you could say for that whole effort since 2016 was that it was a little more elegant. (laughs) It was Mm -hmm. a little more sophisticated. And the big difference I'd say, and you see that now, I think, again, with Trump's kind of authority draining away from him, is that it had kind of the full weight of the establishment on its side, not exclusively, but there were large parts of the establishment which completely bought or at least backed this campaign to remove Trump, the resistance. So it's 
100% true that what Trump is doing is wrong, but it's also completely ridiculous to see so many people in the US and, as Ella says, from the kind of Ramonian classes in the UK, pretending to stand up for democracy because, if anything, they got a lot closer than Trump ever will to seriously calling into question and upending a mass democratic vote. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's the worrying thing, isn't it? It's that you, you have an elite on both sides of the Atlantic that just does not like democracy at all. Now, that's in complete contrast to the voters who took part in this election in record numbers, a really exciting record high turnout. Clearly, the 100 million people who voted took their vote seriously and thought that they were going to have an impact on the direction of the country. But you get Trump challenging the result. I mean, there's been a similar thing even from the kind of Democrat side where you do now see opinion pieces cropping up saying democracy has worked as if democracy is only good when it gives us the correct result. Because of course, you know, producing Trump was seen as a failure of democracy rather than just simply a, an outcome that they didn't like. So it's it's just dispiriting that that distrust of democracy is so widespread, spans across the political spectrum among the establishment. And Trump is just one example, but he happens to be, at this particular time, he happens to be the most egregious example of it. Ella? That's the important point, that Trump is the kind of the obvious monster in this. What he's doing is explicitly an outright affront to democracy. That's clear. But what I think is the issue is you don't get sort of blindsided by just saying, okay, well, if if we don't let Trump win on this, then everything's kind of rosy with democracy. Every, you know, this election has gone well as long as he's not able to overturn it via, you know, spurious claims of fraud and legal means. But just scratch the surface on certain other issues to bring Brexit back up again. I mean, the question of a Biden-Harris administration and Biden's comments in relation to Brexit that Brendan's picked up in his column for Spike this week in relation to asserting that he will use his power and might as the US president to try and force a situation where there will be no hard border in Ireland, period, in relation to Brexit negotiations, is essentially an individual with a huge amount of political power in the world, wielding that political power to try and influence the outcome of a democratic vote by stopping a, you know, stopping a no deal or a clean Brexit, whatever we're calling it these days, by using the Irish border as a political football. And so it's not throwing his toys out of the pram and calling fraud and trying to undermine democracy in an obvious way, but it's these subtle attacks on a democratic vote on the principle of your average citizen having a say in politics, which Biden is doing as much as Trump, but just in these kind of subtle, more legalistic, more kind of actually acceptable ways in terms of the perception of the elite that, you know, it's it's not good to call fraud and overturn a vote, but it's all right to say, oh, you know, this is sort of not quite legal. This is not on for international diplomacy. This is not in relation to the special relationship and then overturn another vote that way. So let's not be fooled into thinking that just that if we get Trump to shut up and pack his bags and get out of the White House, that democracy worldwide is is somehow saved because that would be really a stupid thing to think. Tom? I think it's been interesting as well just seeing the kind of like shift in tone from the Democrats in in recent days, because again, in the run up to the election, the kind of line that Trump was a threat to democracy, that he was kind of neo-fascistic, that the Proud Boys were waiting in the wings to, you know, launch this kind of push, (laughs) things go (laughs) downhill. 
aside from the kind of arguments about the, the wrongs of what Trump is doing, it's interesting how all of that has melted away now. He's refusing to leave. You know, Bill Barr has made his intervention and yet the Democrats are kind of just shrugging that off. They're calling it pathetic. They're calling it ridiculous. And I think it really does give the lie to the kind of very extreme hysterical takes on on Trump in, in recent years. It's a small point, but I think it's quite interesting. I think the other thing that's worth underlining, and you know, you both touched on it, which is this establishment basically think something's democratic when they get what they want. Mm. That's essentially what it is when it's a vote that vindicates them, which puts them back into a position of power. They genuinely think it's their right to rule and anything that challenges that must be nefarious, must be anti-democratic in some way. And I think what we've seen over the course of this election, but obviously over the course of the past four years, is also their posturing against populism is basically posturing against democracy. And I think that's the one thing that we need to bear in mind as you're seeing so many people basically heralding the death of populism as a result of Trump losing the election, as well as Keir Starmer doing well in the polls, whatever it is, is because really that fight has always been a proxy war over the question of democracy, over the, over the ability of a public to not give the establishment what they want, if you like. And as Ella says, going forward, we need to be very vigilant about that because for all of the very hysterical responses to Brexit and Trump for all of the talk of the 1930s or whatever, their attempts to dress this up as some sort of ugly neo-fascistic populism, all of that was really just a knee-jerk reaction to a a fear of ordinary voters intruding on the business of government, which as far as they were concerned had nothing to do with them. And whilst I think the election in the US is actually a bit more cheering insofar as I think the close results suggest that there's still a lot of voters who don't go along with that and aren't willing to do what they're told. And also, given the defects of Trump, I think it's clear that that, that he is a singular factor in that election as well. But nevertheless, they do feel vindicated. They do feel as if the wind is in their sails. And that's something that, yes, we need to be very, very vigilant about in the months and years ahead. So lockdown is back and we're all stuck back in our homes, but that's no reason to stop taking care of yourself and how you look. One thing you definitely don't want to miss out on is a great smooth shave. And that's exactly what you get with Harry's. Unlike so many other razors, it gives you a shave that's close, smooth and comfortable, even if you might have left it a bit too long between shaves. Harry's started with Jeff and Andy two ordinary guys who were fed up with overpriced razors. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory in Germany that's been making blades for 100 years. They've now released their sharpest ever blades, and they're adding a new lubricating strip for an even closer, more comfortable shave. And the best part? They haven't raised prices at all, so replacement blades are still as little as £1.75 each. Want to give Harry's a go? Start your subscription with a trial set today. The set includes a weighted ergonomic handle, their new five-blade razor cartridge, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover to protect your blades on the move. Get the comfortable shave you deserve. Head to harrys.com spiked to claim a trial set for just £3.95. And you'll also be supporting our podcast when you do. Again, head to harrys.com slash spiked today. This week, the world cheered a major breakthrough in the development of a COVID vaccine. Pfizer and BioNTech have hailed the 90% success rate of their new vaccine as a great day for science and humanity. No vaccine has ever got from the drawing board to being proved effective in such a short period of time. It's also the first vaccine to be developed for any type of coronavirus. 
This suggests that other companies working on vaccines could be successful too. UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock has promised to inject hope into millions of arms. The UK rollout is expected to begin early in the next year. So, Tom, is the end of the nightmare finally in sight? Potentially, but I fear that it won't be for a couple Mm. of reasons. As you say, it's a remarkable achievement. It's a remarkable human achievement in such a short space of time when vaccines can take years to develop and often not actually being developed successfully. The speed with which not only Pfizer, but as you say, the other vaccines have been able to, in this case, seemingly get there and in other cases get very, very close. And we expect to see more come on stream in the next few weeks and months. It's a remarkable achievement. My worry is less the vaccine itself. It's more how the political class kind of respond to this new development. I think it's been quite clear already that it's been taken as a kind of vindication of the lockdown policy, Mm. which I don't think it vindicates necessarily whatsoever. More worryingly, though, is the fact that it's quite clear that if we're talking about vaccinating the population, this isn't something which is going to happen in March, as was originally suggested by some overexcited individuals. It's something that could drag well on into next year, if not beyond. It's also quite clear that given the strategy that the government has been pursuing at the moment, which is basically trying to tamp down anyone getting ill with this virus or any or any transmission of the virus, that again, this vaccine necessarily makes that much difference. First of all, because there's just not enough of it to be able to do mass vaccination. You know, you could get it to the most vulnerable, but as we know, the government doesn't think protecting the most vulnerable cuts it. You know, you need to keep everyone under restrictions. But also is the fact that there's no indication that this will actually stop transmission. Mm. It may stop people getting bad disease, which is obviously the most important thing, surely. But at the same time, because the government has been pursuing a strategy which is to limit transmission as much as is humanly possible, which comes, as we know, at huge social and economic costs, there's no reason why, certainly in the near term, in the next few months, that that's going to make them want to kind of lift off some of these restrictions. It seems like the the chatter at the Tory party at the moment is they're hoping that the kind of combination of this vaccine, the Oxford vaccine and Operation Moonshot will mean that they can actually be able to bring us back to normal sooner rather than later. But given the logistical issues with just rolling out an effective vaccine, let alone this pie in the sky testing everyone every day or whatever it is that Matt Hancock wants to do, it doesn't really fill you with confidence. So yes, it's a remarkable achievement. My concern is that it will just be used as vindication to carry on with this never-ending lockdown that we're in. And my fear is that at the earliest, it will be kind of towards the end of next year, really, to the point where this could be rolled out to the point will be effective. The final thing I'd say is just the other thing that we've got to be very careful about is the extent to which, as we've seen the NHS become like the National COVID service in recent years, if it becomes the National Vaccination Service, there's Mm. already been doctors and medical experts raise the alarm that GP surgeries would have to heavily scale back their activities in order to meet the demand for doling out this vaccine. Now, obviously, I think it'd be a good thing for people to be vaccinated. It's an important part of the picture, regardless what your perspective is, I think, on on these restrictions and coronavirus. But at the same time, that could again come with very, very real challenges, something we're going to have to be very alert to, because as we've talked about time and time again, there's plenty of people have, the way in which these restrictions and the government handling of this pandemic has affected care has been very, very serious. And you wouldn't want to see that happen all over again to the ends of trying to get out of it. Ella? I'm going to do the same as Tom, which is start off positive and then pick holes in it. But I think it's important (laughs) to do that because as Tom says, I mean, just look what we can do when there is the political will and the momentum to do it. I mean, it really is incredible that the vaccine has been turned around potentially this quickly. But it is important to 
point out where there are potential failings or where there are problems. Because the thing that I'm most worried about is not the kind of really nutty anti-vaxxers response to this, because we've talked about that on this podcast before in relation to the kind of crossover between lizard people 5G and anti-vaxxers on the very extreme side. I'm not talking about that, but there is a problem a deep problem with trust at the moment in relation to politics, in relation to coronavirus. And so what I'm, for the first time I heard the news of this, I thought, I wonder how many people are actually going to take the vaccine, be willing to take the vaccine, not because they are the opposite of COVID idiots, whatever, you know, not because they're stupid or misinformed or nuts, but because the sort of tenor of the discussion around the virus for months now has been one steeped in a kind of sense of fear mongering and also completely lacking in any trust in the public. So, you know, it's commonplace now when you talk to people anecdotally for people to say, oh, yeah, sure, like I'm going to go along with the regulations. I don't want to be a bad person, but it's all nonsense, isn't it? There's really not that much trust in terms of the measures the government is taking. People are sceptical about the reasons why they're taking it. These really kind of poor showings from these press conferences with the kind of barrage of slides and all this kind of stuff. Time and again, it does a huge amount of damage to public trust. And so the government is not in a good position to try and win people over to take a vaccine. And that's terrible because people really do have to take this vaccine is one of the main ways in which we'll get out of this. And the solution to that is to do something that I think the government is going to find very hard to do, which is not to just suddenly flood GPs with the means to keep the vaccine cold. And, you know, Matt Hancock's been on the news endlessly talking to us about what what you have to do to keep it at minus 70. I kind of don't care about that. That's the sort of technical procedure. The actual real issue will be how do you get people to come and take the vaccine without it being compulsory, which is a terrible idea. And that means doing not just taking polls of people having this very kind of technocratic approach, but actually getting health workers out into the community to talk to people. It means actually engaging in the public in a kind of form of mass communication that as we've seen throughout the pandemic, the government is pretty much incapable of doing. There are some really worrying trends going on at the moment, not just, you know, people like Wakefield, discredited anti-vax people speaking at mass rallies in Trafalgar Square, but a kind of underlying sentiment in many people for various reasons of recent political trends to not just take politicians' words with a pinch of salt, but to really not trust what a lot of what comes out of Westminster. And if you're going to run a mass public health campaign on the basis of something like a vaccine, then you've got to fix that first. Otherwise, no matter how successful or incredible or effective the Pfizer vaccine or any of these others are, we'll be in the same position we are come March, April, May. I think the trust issue is key. And, and, you know, I was astonished to read the Royal Society's recommendation that basically we could criminalize anti-vax misinformation. I mean, I cannot think of any idea more stupid that is going to create more suspicion around a vaccine than essentially making it a crime to express skepticism. We can talk about a bit about that in a moment, but I did want to come back just to my own pessimism, even though, again, I have to say how wonderful the, the vaccine is and how what an incredible feat of science. My pessimism is is that our problem is not necessarily entirely to do with the virus. I mean, a lot of it's political, right? We need a political cure for the lockdown malaise 
as well as a scientific one, because at the end of the day, there are vast numbers of people. If you look at the polls, I mean, I don't trust the polls that much, but there are still substantial numbers of people who want the restrictions to continue even after the vaccine comes. And even if you look at some of the restrictions that are going on at the moment, whether there's a light at the end of the tunnel or not is is irrelevant. They are not justified. If you think about the current England-wide lockdown that we've been bounced into, you know, the argument for this was made on a basis that has been completely exposed as as faulty, you know, within days after it being announced, basically the government pretty much projecting 4,000 deaths per day at a peak, which we now know is, is pretty much definitely not going to happen. Even the government knew this was not going to happen when they announced it. More and more evidence is seeming to show that actually the peak of the current wave had been passed before the lockdown began. So, you know, we're seeing a stabilising of the official case count, the survey of infections in the community. King's College London have their ZOE Symptoms Act, which, you know, tracks people's symptoms. That also going down before lockdown. So even though there's going to be this immense pressure to say, let's keep the restrictions until the vaccine, but we have to keep pushing back on that and saying, no, they're not justified either way. Tom? It's become like an ideology at this point, which is increasingly impervious to challenge and even just facts, like you say, mm. like in relation to the, the data that's come out recently. I think it's also really important that this points to the kind of also the question of making sure that we do get back to normal and not the new normal, as it were. This doesn't become a kind of acceptable means through which you handle crises in the future. But also the immediate term is something that we've really got to remember. I mean, this week we've got the new unemployment figures through. It's up to 4.8% pushed up largely by record high redundancies. Those figures, I think, are up until about September. So that was before the original furlough was due to end, but also before the announcement was made that it was going to be extended. So I reckon, you know, it seems like in the next set of figures, you're going to see those pushed up even more. So there's a kind of near-term battle, which is to make sure that we get out of this lockdown, regardless of what's going on with the vaccine. Because if we weren't there already, we're certainly very soon going to be getting into the cure is worse than the disease type territory in relation to lockdown. But also, as you say, it's that longer term battle, which is to make sure that first of all, social life and public life returns back to normal, that that's a really important thing to defend, that the precautionary principle cannot rule in all instances, because otherwise life and politics could quickly be drained of much point or any meaning. But also in the near term, we can't allow the, the dangling of this vaccine, incredible breakthrough though it is, to stop us from making that argument and stop us from starting to start up our society again, because otherwise there's going to be a hell of a lot of collateral damage as a result of that, not just in the near future, but in the next few months. If you could learn more about any topic, what would it be? Well, the good news is you don't have to choose just one, thanks to The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus streaming service has thousands of informative, engaging lectures, all available from the comfort of your own home. There are hundreds of subjects to choose from. I highly recommend one of their brand new courses, White Collar Criminal Law Explained. White collar crimes like conspiracy, bribery and money laundering are never out of the news. They capture our imagination. They're the subjects of thousands of books, TV shows and films. But how does white collar criminal law actually work? Where's the line between what's immoral and what's illegal when it comes to these kinds of crimes? And how does the state successfully construct a case against the accused? Those are just some of the questions you'll have answered in White Collar Criminal Law Explained, one of the many fantastic courses available on The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus gives you access to professors and experts from top universities and institutions from all around the world. So no matter the subject, 
you're receiving high quality, reliable information from every course. You can also download the Great Courses Plus app to learn anytime, anywhere, and on any device. And get this, the Great Courses Plus is offering listeners to this podcast a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. That's access to any and all courses completely free. Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Former FA chairman Greg Clark has resigned as the vice president of FIFA. He was giving evidence to a parliamentary select committee on diversity in football. Clark accidentally referred to high-profile coloured footballers instead of footballers of colour, though he apologised for this as soon as it was pointed out. He was also accused of referring to homosexuality as a lifestyle choice and of using racial stereotypes. Ella, what are your thoughts on this? Well, we've already talked about the phenomenon of two things being true at the same time. And I think this applies to Greg (laughs) Clark, which is that on the one hand, his comment where he used the term coloured people, you might be able to be convinced was a slip of the tongue. I mean, Amber Rudd did it. Remember when she was a number of years ago, she was being interviewed and defending Diane Abbott against, you know, all the racist abuse that she receives. And instead of saying people of colour, which is the phrase that you're often told you're supposed to use, she said coloured people. And so this is what Greg Clark claims happened here and he apologised for it. It seems like that was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back because as many people have pointed out, he's got a bit of a track record for, let's say, being old fashioned, if you're going to be generous. I mean, you know, it's hard to defend someone who's such a an expert, shall we say, in the world of football to say stupid things like women don't like being goalkeepers because they don't like having the ball kicked at them, or that South Asian people are better in IT departments than they are playing football. I mean, all of this, you can take offence to it if you want. But the crucial thing is whether or not this is a sackable offence. And this is where two things can be true at once. Greg Clark can be an incredibly unpleasant, old-fashioned, objectionable individual, but his sacking or his resigning, supposedly, probably, I can imagine with a metaphorical gun at his back, Mm. is also wrong because it sets a dangerous precedent. It is this idea that you can lose your job on the basis of views that you hold. You know, at Spiked, we've covered many, many, many examples of people far less important who have suffered a similar fate for having said either something mistakenly or voiced an opinion that isn't illegal and being forced out of their job. That's dangerous for two things. One, it's a problem for free speech because in a free society, you should be allowed to say what you think and say it freely and not be silenced for that. But also in terms of, you know, I keep thinking of things like workers' rights on the basis of this. It sets a dangerous precedent for employers to be able to kick out their workforce if they don't say the right thing. I mean, there are terms like bringing the company into disrepute, which are used in cases like this. But you know, whether you're Greg Clark or someone who's said something maybe a bit off colour in the break room in Sainsbury's, the idea that your employer gets to sack you or force you to resign on the basis of your opinions is a dangerous one. So you can hate Greg Clark, but you should also hate the way in which this attack on free speech is setting a dangerous precedent for those of us who aren't up top in the FA. Tom? 
Well, I think this is just another example of how so many campaigns for anti-racism are just pro-political correctness. And there's mm-hmm. a big difference between those two things. It's increasingly happening in football, which is funny because so many people who both work in it, play in it and watch it are incredibly unpolitically correct. So it's a slightly strange mismatch there, but I guess, you know, they got their work cut out for them at least. But again, someone mistakenly and then apologising for using the phrase coloured people and then admitting his mistake is not in any conceivable sense explicitly racist, malign statement, especially because the, the sentence in which he said it, I think, was actually talking about the flack that black players get online and things like this. You know, mm. this wasn't a kind of like bitter aside, you know, made on a phone call or made in a text message or whatever. It was quite clear that whilst he wasn't expressing a racist view in that committee meeting, he was just failing to abide by the etiquette. That's essentially what political correctness is. It's it's not about fighting racism. You know, th- those of us who are critics of political correctness often get kind of caricatured as you just want to go back to days where people could go around strewing the N-word and it didn't matter. No, that's not it whatsoever. It's about this absurd obsession with language to the point where what you're talking about is no longer prejudice whatsoever. It is a question of using the right words, using the right etiquette. And the fact that he, you know, almost instantly apologised but had to go anyway, I think is a is a really interesting example of that. Mm. So many of these kinds of campaigns, you know, what we would now call kind of cancellation campaigns or whatever, so much of it has so little to do with what the speaker themselves actually thinks or says often, or what the intent of what they say, at least. It just becomes in a very real sense, a kind of like mob-like behaviour. It becomes about the mob feeling good about itself for kind of seeing down the wrong thinker rather than anything else. And it's just so strange. This has been happening in football for a long time. I remember a few years ago when Rio Ferdinand was still playing and he got a three-match ban because he called someone's mum a sket on Twitter. And there's things like this where you just think it's such a mismatch in football. It's so absurd because you, you do have this situation in which this incredibly restrictive etiquette, one that you know, in some cases, it is just a case that certain words have become outdated. In other cases, it is just people taking offence where it's not needed, but applied to a world which people just generally not like that. And it's just so striking to see that mismatch. But as Ella does say, as is always the case with these situations, it's not about the high profile person who gets brought down, bad though that is, it's because it sets a precedent for everyone else. And especially when you see the way in which football fans have been policed in recent years, it's alarming that it seems like you could easily see people going further down that road as well. I think the etiquette point's really interesting because the etiquette has never changed with such speed as in the time we're currently living in now. The fact that even recently the expression BAME has been called into question. Now, I, th- I think there are very good reasons to call, call that into question, but it's telling that an acronym like that, which was the politically correct way to refer to ethnic minorities in Britain, is now being denounced as racist by UK music which is a group that basically represents the music industry to, to politicians. And, you know, that's a fascinating little microcosm as well. Think about, you know, music is not really a world of, of PC a lot of the time. You don't really expect rappers to be using all the politically correct terminology and, and, and etiquette. And yet, at the same time, there are these orders from our high to use the correct PC language. I mean, no one... Even Greg Clark is not old enough or hasn't lived under a rock for long enough to know that coloured is now considered offensive. But at the same time, you can see how a lot of just ordinary people out there, well-meaning people, could just easily trip over the words Mm. and their kind of forever-changing usage. Some of the terms that have come out recently, like Latinx, which the vast majority of Latin Americans reject and don't like and don't use, is a fascinating one. You know, will that word just be shunted out of the language or will it be demanded that you use it? You don't know. Or BIPOC is another one of these acronyms, you know, Black, Indigenous, People of Colour. Now, will that change 
now that the exit polls revealed that a lot of Indigenous Americans are Trump supporters, will they be kicked out of the kind of people of colour bracket? Who knows? But yeah, if you're not someone who follows these debates and follows these every twists and turns in language, you know, you do feel sorry for people. How do, how do you keep up? Ella? There is a history of racism in football in particular. I mean, people throwing bananas at John Barnes in the 90s, for example. But things have moved on a lot since then. It's not perfect, but we are not in the situation that we were 20, 30 years ago. And it's important to point that, not to say that you should just turn a blind eye to racism or any kind of abuse or prejudice today. But the most disappointing thing to come out of the Greg Clark fiasco is this idea that his clumsy words or his offensive comments or his outdated views cause real kind of physical harm to players and to people watching the sport, that this is, you know, as bad, if not worse than throwing bananas. We have the term, you know, invisible banana skins that people talk about today in relation to racism and football. The reason why it's important to draw a distinction between that and to point out where people are being oversensitive, if you want to use that word, is because the idea that you need to silence and sanitize specifically sport is just so patronising to mm. players and to spectators who end up feeling like they you know, need to be costed and protected when in fact the way in which we beat racism in these kind of areas as a society is for people being not just thick-skinned but defiant and standing up against injustice and being agents in control over their own lives, not being costed and not being pathetic. And so a little bit of a reminder of that kind of history of the way in which we got here and the victories that have been won against prejudice are important when looking at the kind of pathetic scandals like this Greg Clark one. It's fascinating how much kind of credit political correctness gives itself in the fight against racism. And it's quite offensive when you think about it because of all the points that Ella was just making. Because the idea that political correctness has brought us to the kind of much more anti-racist place that we are as incited today is almost to suggest that racism was tackled by academics and well-meaning campaigners going around shushing people and telling them they couldn't use certain words. It's absurd when you think <laughs> about it. And especially in, in uh, the world of football, again, as Ella was says, there was a very strong history of racism, particularly around certain clubs. And it was the bravery often of black players facing down those kinds of chants and kind of winning over crowds and also their supporters rallying to their defence when they again kind of faced any kind of like racist aggro from the terraces. All of this was really important and to my mind made a far bigger contribution to anti-racism and changing attitudes in this country than again these kind of highfalutin theories about what words you are and aren't allowed to say. Language changes, certain words become offensive where they weren't previously, but all of that is a product and an offshoot of these more serious material things and and to suggest that again it's the credit of the pc campaigners which is why we are where we are today does all those other people a disservice thanks for listening to the spike podcast we'll be back next week if you enjoyed the show why not check out some of spike's other podcasts in the meantime we have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, 
a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.